On February 12, 1959, Carl Sandburg, one of the most popular American poets and historians, was invited to speak before a joint session of the House of Representatives and the United States Senate. The occasion was the 150th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln. Sandberg is perhaps one of the best-known eulogies to the fallen president. He said, Not often in the story of mankind does a man arrive on earth who is both steel and velvet, who is hard as rock and soft as drifting fog, who holds in his heart and mind the paradox of terrible storm and peace, unspeakable and perfect. Here and there across the centuries come reports of men alleged to have these contrasts. And the incomparable Abraham Lincoln, born 150 years ago this day, is an approach, if not a perfect realization, of this character. Sandberg went on to say that in the time of the April lilacs in the year 1865, on his death, the casket with his body was carried north and west a thousand miles, and the American people wept as never before. Bells sobbed, cities wore crepe, people stood in tears and with hats off as the railroad burial car paused in the leading cities of seven states, ending its journey at Springfield, Illinois, his hometown. The gravesite of Abraham Lincoln is perhaps the ultimate expression of American grief. His funeral and monument are so significant that even more than a century later, we're still talking about them. They were important enough that Sandberg chose to include them in his eulogy of Abraham Lincoln. Today, we discuss this interesting and unconventional monument in many ways. In comparison to our discussion of George Washington last week, we'll see a lot of similarities and a lot of the same challenges. What does it take to properly memorialize the leader of a nation? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. To start off with today, I do need to apologize to all of you for the lack of an episode last week. This, which is part two of my President's Day episode, unfortunately, for various and sundry reasons, did not get recorded or it got recorded and then got lost so I apologize for that um one of the unfortunate things about working for the government even as a subcontractor is that you have to wait forever for them but when they say jump you have to spring into action immediately so uh I was unfortunately dragged out with my archaeologist last week and we had to do lots of last minute shovel testing on a project that was two hours from my house which did not leave time to re-record the episode, which didn't record the first time. So I apologize for that. Uh, in other world news, though, I will say I have been getting a ton of really, really positive feedback. And I have been hustling, not necessarily behind the microphone, but out in the world trying to promote the podcast. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet and greet several other Atlanta podcasters. I went to a very interesting... Um, sort of meet and greet event at the Lenox Mall here in Atlanta on Wednesday night. If you're following along on Instagram, I posted some pictures. 
it was really rewarding in a sense because of the probably, I don't know, 70 people who were there. I think maybe only 15 of us had podcasts. The rest were people who were aspiring podcasters, which I've said this in the past. I am a little bit more of a retiring personality. Never in a million years before I actually started a podcast would I have gone out and just asked podcasters questions. I will watch 700 hours of YouTube videos to learn how to do it before I ask a single person a single question. So I was actually really admiring of them. It's great though. You know, I am so proud of how weird we cemetery people are. And even in a room full of podcasters, many of which are very niche, or as they say, niche. You say I run a cemetery podcast, people still take a visible step backwards. And it's kind of great. I love it. I know I'm not a true crime podcast. If one more person asked me, oh, so do you talk about places where people who are victims of true crime are buried? No. No, I, I understand that it's probably a really wise business strategy to try and have a twist that incorporates true crime because that is where the listeners and the money are. No, same way I don't do ghost stories. I think there's way too much factual information that's really, really interesting. So it was a rewarding experience. Um, I more met people who I think I would be interested in seeing or talking to in the real world as opposed to a lot of podcasts that I have a lot in common with. Um, I will say I have continued to pursue with an almost creepy admiration um, Victoria Lemos, who is working over at Archive Atlanta. If you have not had the chance to listen to her, I would highly recommend it, especially because I know I do have a huge listener base here in Atlanta. If you are interested in history in any aspect, uh, Victoria is doing a great job. She is pretty much Atlanta's equivalent of the Bowery Boys, uh, what they've been doing up in New York for the last 10 years. I obviously focus on cemeteries, but... It does refresh me to sometimes get out of the cemetery and look at the larger history picture because that is actually what I do for a living. As much as I love cemeteries, I have to look at buildings. I have to look at factories. I have to look at houses. She kind of helps to remind me of that. And the fact is, is that cemeteries serve communities and communities really are what make society. So she has been my my tag along and it's been really fun getting to know somebody else who faces all the same challenges of podcasting. So that's been sort of an interesting experience. Um, And then one other quick story before we get into the real meat of the episode. Last Thursday night, um, when I was being delinquent, I really should have been re-recording this podcast, but in the interest of trying to beat Valentine's Day crowds, I had a date the night before. So I was sitting at a bar uh, waiting for my date to show up. And as I'm sitting there reading the most recent edition of the Association for Gravestone Studies Quarterly, never doubt that I love it just as much as I say I do on the podcast, I happen to overhear the conversation of the two women sitting next to me. And these women were probably in their 60s, and one of the women brings up the fact that her mother had recently died. So she's telling her friend about her mother's funeral and what her mother wanted, and how her mother had been vehemently against having a concrete burial vault. 
because her mother is a true believer and her mother believes in the literal resurrection of the body and did not want to be encased in concrete. And so they're having this whole discussion and she said, well, I didn't have the heart to tell mom that it's the law and she has to have a concrete burial vault. And so the two women are going back and forth on this discussion. The other woman's like, well, is it the law? Is it really the law? And she's like, I don't know. It seems like it should be the law. And, you know, they were telling me that you have to have it because otherwise the embalming chemicals will get into the soil and that's bad and it gets into the water supply. And I'm listening to this whole conversation. And I'm like, is it tacky for me to jump in? Nah. So then I say, well, excuse me, let me set you straight on this. So then I proceed to have this whole conversation with this woman and trying not to be insensitive because her mother did just die. Though she assured me mom lived into her 90s. It was a good long life. So I was explaining that the concrete burial vault, as we discussed pretty extensively in the Memorial Park episode, is sort of a modern iteration and it really makes everyone's life a lot easier because you don't have any sinking in the ground. You don't have those sort of telltale grave-shaped saucer marks in your lawn so it makes it a lot easier to run say a ride on lawnmower over and this whole idea of it being a legal safety issue with groundwater and whatnot is really one of these myths and so I started of course talking about the American way of death and things like that and it was so interesting and you know these women were not at all insulted that I jumped into their conversation I apologize and they started talking about it but the thing that amazed me is they started asking questions because they are just great observers of the world, these two women. They were asking questions based on saying, well, why does this cemetery look different from this cemetery? And what about these things? And it's one of the things I find so exciting because these are very integral parts of our world. They're things that we see and observe every day. The number one question I got asked at that podcast event was, what do you hope to get out of this? My intention has always been education. I want people to learn more about cemeteries. I think people are afraid of things that they don't understand. Death is a very common fear, but I think that things surrounding death, because they are very uncertain and they are very foreign, often make people nervous. And in this case, this woman had a lot of anxiety over the fact that she both simultaneously wanted to honor her mother's wishes, but she was terrified of breaking the law. And that to me is a type of anxiety that you should not have, especially at a time when you already have a very high pressure situation. You already have a very emotional situation. So hopefully the conversation that I had, brief though it might have been with them, helped to provide that type of education. And that's always been my goal. I want people who are interested in cemeteries to learn more. People who want to take care of their own cemeteries to have the tools that they need to do that. So that's a long six or seven minute intro just to kind of give you an idea of what's going on in the greater world of Tomb with a View. Um, I do have to say some people have been thoughtful enough to send some photographs, which I really love. And please continue to do that. Feel free to either hashtag Tomb with a View or tag me in your photos. I would love to share some of those on our social media. Um, my cousin Madeline sent me some incredible photos from Puerto Rico recently that were both spectacular because it was one of the old colonial cemeteries near the old fort with a just sweeping views of the ocean, 
but also very upsetting because there was a badly deteriorated tomb and I did take the opportunity obviously to send it out to all of my uh my tomb oriented friends for their shock and awe factor but please do that um I wish I could get to every cemetery I wish I could see them all but unfortunately I can't so if you see something that's really spectacular that you think that other listeners would be interested in please send them to me I would love that Additionally, to make up for my delinquency last week, I will be releasing two episodes next week. Um, Very special doubleheader episode. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it and uh, definitely in keeping with the upcoming season. So that's something to look forward to. So next week I will be releasing both on Tuesday and on Friday. So you can look forward to double episodes next week. That being said, Let's switch back over and continue our discussion where we left it off. So lastly, we spoke about the grave of George Washington. And I confessed that overall, I'm not very enthusiastic about presidential history. Maybe because I feel like it's been overdone. But the one thing I learned today that was really fascinating in doing the research on Lincoln is the fact that we really don't learn from our mistakes. Now, Lincoln obviously is a much better known death story than Washington. As we talked, Washington's death was fairly sudden and somewhat anticlimactic, sort of a morbid sore throat issue. Obviously, Lincoln is assassinated at Ford's Theater. He dies on April 14th, 1865. And an assassination, it's one of those things that I don't think that until you have experienced it as a nation, you can really understand. And I honestly can't even speak to this being the age that I am. I obviously was not alive when Kennedy was assassinated. I have done a great deal of research into it. As you know, I have have written about the Kennedy gravesite at Arlington. Obviously, Kennedy and Lincoln, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw between them. They are both assassinated in very public places. They are both shot in the head. It is both very sudden and very dramatic. Certainly, Jacqueline Kennedy will adopt many, 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 many of the accoutrements that are set at Lincoln's funeral when she plans JFK's memorial service and eventual burial. What amazed me was the fact that, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot of thought or planning that went into Lincoln's funeral. At least not in the traditional sense. So I can remember being surprised that, uh, for those of you who might have seen the, the film The Queen, that when Princess Diana died, the very sudden outpouring and the planning of her funeral, they actually used the kind of pre-planned model that they had for the queen mom's funeral because that was the only plan they had that could accommodate these ridiculous crowds and this whole plan. They had a planned funeral. There was no planned funeral for Lincoln because his death was so sudden and so dramatic. Now you might say we're talking about graves here. You cannot talk about Lincoln's grave without first discussing Lincoln's funeral. So Mary Todd Lincoln who is an interesting character in and among herself. She has some definite 
mental issues, and she is a feisty one. She will accept nothing less than Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois. Now, Oak Ridge is Springfield's equivalent of a rural cemetery. It is previously established. And I will say, has one of the worst websites I think I have ever seen. They have one of those websites that you go to and you look at it and you say, hmm, somebody designed this in 1996 and they have not touched it since. Now, I also feel for them because they are in the awkward position of being a private cemetery. Or rather, I should say, I believe that they are owned by the city of Springfield. So they are a public cemetery, but they also have one of the most visited monuments in the United States, smack dab in the middle, but that monument does not belong to them. So imagine if you had a swimming pool on your property that everyone could use and you had to clean up all around, but you didn't actually have control over the pool or who used it or when it was used. That's kind of how I feel like the Lincoln tomb is to Oak Ridge. I can understand it being very overwhelming, And they possibly don't get the benefits that they necessarily need to have a great website or to improve in other senses. So Mrs. Lincoln has decided on Oak Ridge as her husband's burial place. Unfortunately, simultaneously, you also have what is known as the National Lincoln Monument Association. And this is a group of men who get together immediately following the assassination and they start to raise money. And they start to plan where Lincoln will be buried. I'm going to get more, give you more on the National Lincoln Monument Association in a minute. Because they sort of do their own thing against Mrs. Lincoln's wishes. And it's interesting and I'm so sad that the tomb that they built no longer exists. Because there was another tomb. Sort of similar to the idea that we talked about last week where George Washington wanted to be buried at Mount Vernon. They convinced Martha after his death that he should be moved to the Capitol and she kind of grudgingly agrees. It's a similar situation. Like I said, we don't do very well with presidential burials where people stick to their guns. So, they know that Lincoln is going back to Illinois. And so... First of all, he is embalmed. And this is an important thing to bring up because embalming, while it's been around since the time of the Egyptians, is not widely practiced until the Civil War. This is something I feel, honestly, I'm, I'm getting ready to do a Civil War episode because I think it needs to be done. You cannot talk about modern funeral industry, you cannot talk about modern cemeteries without talking about the Civil War because the Civil War changes everything. And the ability to embalm and the ability to ship bodies by rail is a very new and very exciting technology, and it is going to change the United States. So Lincoln is embalmed. By my count, no less than 30 times. And let me explain. We tend to think of embalming as a single process now. Still being perfected in in its infancy, multiple iterations of embalming were believed to be used the chemicals that they use are not as refined they're still trying to perfect the process and in the case of Lincoln they need his body to be as fresh as possible for as long as possible because what is going to happen is is he's going to be transported from Washington DC back 
to his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. And how this is going to happen is using what's called the Old Nashville. And the Old Nashville is basically an early version of Air Force One. It is the luxury train car that was designed for use by the president and will eventually now become Lincoln's funeral train. Um, It's a steam locomotive, and it will carry him from Washington. And what they do is they essentially declare that the railroads are going to become official military routes. So they basically clear the other trains off the tracks to make way for this. And in the process, the train will pass through 150 communities with 12 official funerals along the way. Now, if you remember from last week when we talked about George Washington, there were simultaneous funerals occurring in Boston, in Philadelphia, in other cities. This is the same type of mourning, but they are actually formally going to have his body there as opposed to just being there sort of in spirit as Washington was. It's interesting to me that 100 years later, when JFK is assassinated in late 1963, the medium of television eliminates the need for this. Technology really does dictate the transference of culture because the culture does not change. The need to mourn does not change. The desire to memorialize and to publicly grieve does not change. We're just able to do it in different ways. First, the technology of the railroad, then the technology of television is able to translate that. So the funeral train departs Washington, D.C. at 8 a.m. on Friday, April 21st. So roughly a week after Lincoln dies. It travels slowly, only about 20 miles per hour for safety purposes. And there are four full-time riders that go along with Lincoln's body. The first is Captain Charles Penrose, who is the quartermaster, who essentially is stocking all the things that need to be stocked, whether it's coal or provisions. The second is Ward Hill Lehman, who is actually Lincoln's former bodyguard. Um, He's a U.S. Marshal who, picture him as early Secret Service, who was protecting Lincoln. And I think it's interesting that he carries this duty on after death and he continues to protect the president's body on its final journey back to Springfield. Then you have Dr. Charles Brown, who was an embalmer. As I said, the embalming process was something that would continue throughout the trip. And lastly, you had um, Frank T. Sands, who was an undertaker, who was dealing with the more physical issues of... um, the journey of the body. So they stop, basically they go north and then they turn west. So the official stops along the route are Baltimore, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, New York City, Albany, Buffalo, Cleveland, Columbus, Indianapolis, Michigan City, which is also in Indiana, Chicago, and lastly, of course, Springfield. So Lincoln would be transported and would finally arrive at Oak Ridge on May 4th, 1865, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, let's get back to that national association that we talked about that is planning essentially their own tomb. So what Mary Todd Lincoln had said was that there would obviously be a permanent memorial to her husband built, but... In the meantime, 
he, as well as her son, Willie. Now, Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, um, pretty well-known throughout history. He was born in 1850 and had died in 1862. Um, and I believe he died of either typhoid or typhus. Dies fairly young. And he had been buried in the mausoleum of a family near Washington, D.C., So he was moved with his father, and this is another one of those parallels that you'll see with JFK and Lincoln, that Jacqueline Kennedy also wanted her two children, who had predeceased the president, to be moved from their respective graves to Arlington to be buried beside their father. And so you can see now that President Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, and their two deceased children are buried there. So the body of Willie, as well as the body of the president, are both transported, and Mary Todd Lincoln wants them placed in the receiving vault at Oak Ridge. We've talked about receiving vaults. They are a measure to store bodies, particularly during winter weather. Now, obviously, this is late spring. That's less of an issue. But what she says is that they will be stored, essentially, in this receiving vault until the proper memorial is completed. Then they will be moved. Now... The National Lincoln Monument Association had been very busy, and they had already raised approximately $50,000 for the construction of Lincoln's tomb. And Lincoln's tomb will be funded by subscriptions. Uh, This is a big distinction that separates it from, say, JFK's tomb, uh, because the Kennedys do step forward, and they are more than willing to pay for the memorial at Arlington. In the end, they don't have to pay for the uh, the full amount um, the taxpayers do end up footing the bill for that but Lincoln it is a subscription and when we had talked I think way back in episode one when I was talking about Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland um, that's another perfect example where you have essentially subscriptions where they um, raise money they had raised money for the Garfield Memorial, the James Garfield Memorial, there the same way where essentially school children sent in pennies. And this is not unheard of. Uh, so this type of subscription starts really early, and they have already raised approximately $50,000 in essentially the first month. And their feeling is that Lincoln should be accessible to the public. And so they push for the purchase of what they call the Mather Block. And this land was owned by Colonel Thomas Mather, and it's very close to the Chicago and Alston Railroad. And what they do is they take their funds and they start to work day and night so that they can complete this tomb by May 24th, which is the scheduled public funeral for Lincoln. Uh, Obviously, I already said he arrives on May 4th, so that's 20 days early. So it's not complete, but they make a pretty good dent in it. This is where Mary Todd steps in and she starts to get very feisty. She starts to threaten that she will bury him elsewhere, that Oak Ridge was where the president wanted to be buried, and she wants no part of this Mather block. And she does the unthinkable and threatens to bury him in Chicago, the Wild West town. She has a great line, something to the effect of, the great emancipator will rest in Oak Ridge, something along those lines. And she puts her foot down, and so 
Lincoln will be placed in the receiving vault. They eventually actually build a temporary, smaller, more traditional tomb that looks a whole lot like a receiving vault that he will lie in for quite some time because it does take a while to complete the monument, uh, the better part of a decade. But I think it's interesting that the tomb is eventually completed on the Mather block and it stands there for a time. Sadly, it is no longer there. What stands there is actually the Illinois State Capitol uh, that will eventually be built on that very lucrative land, which is, believe it or not, right next to the railroad. So for the same reasons that they thought it would be a good location for Lincoln's tomb, this is the same reason that it's eventually chosen for the Capitol. There are some pictures of this. I will make sure to post it because... I think it's great that there was this tomb that they put all of this time and effort and money into that was never used. So let's talk about the actual monument itself for Lincoln. Because I won't lie, I was consistently surprised by the fact that this is not that great a monument. So let's start with the... the, original temporary tomb it actually is strikingly resemblant to Washington's tomb uh it is brick it is barrel vaulted uh it has a vaguely Romanesque feel because it has a curved arch it's a lovely tomb for anybody else I would be very impressed obviously they didn't think it was good enough for Abraham Lincoln but it is lovely and it's completed in December of 1865 so about a year and a half, about 18 months afterwards. So Lincoln's body does lay for a time in the actual receiving vault at Oak Ridge. Then it's moved to this temporary brick tomb later on. Um, sadly, this too has been demolished. Um, it's very close. So if you go to Oak Ridge today, you can see the public receiving vault and the present monument. It's essentially halfway in between the two of them. Um, or the site of it was. Um, and again, I have a, a nice picture of this so you can see it. And both Lincoln, Willie, or William Wallace, his son, as well as his son, Edward Baker, both of whom had died, they were all placed in this temporary tomb. Now, it's interesting because you also have a full contingent of soldiers who are placed there, and you can see photos of this, soldiers that are supposed to guard there um to protect the body of Lincoln they really do think of just about everything the construction of the tomb itself though this is what's kind of funny for me they clearly have an eye towards memorialization because they hire a man by the name of Larkin Mead he's actually Larkin Mead Jr. um who you may have heard of Larkin Mead is probably best known for being a sculptor. He's originally from Brattleboro, Vermont, um, which if you know anything about Vermont, it's kind of in the heart of that stone region of Vermont. Um, and he's actually living overseas in Florence at the time. Obviously, no better place to be practicing your sculpture than in Italy. And what he does is he draws up a proposal. What Larkin Mead is not is an architect. He puts together a basic design based around bronze statuary that he feels very strongly about. And his at his core is a enormous 10-foot-high statue of Lincoln, which he calls the Emancipator. 
And then he has a whole, what I would call sculpture series. So at the four corners of the monument are going to be four um, statues that represent the different branches of the military, the infantry, cavalry, artillery, and navy, which he used to protect and hold the Union together during the Civil War. There are shields, which mark each of the 37 states, which I did read somewhere that they have since been updated to include all 50 states now. He does consult with an architect. Uh, And this architect is a gentleman by the name of Russell Sturgis. However, this is not a bang-up job. I'm going to say it right up front. They have grand ideas. But to me, it's kind of like planning an outfit around a really fabulous necklace and a pair of earrings and forgetting to put your pants on. Because that's what this monument is. Despite the time it takes to erect it, they make massive mistakes. So... The one that comes to mind immediately is that the footings of this massive monument, how deep? How deep would we think? Now, granted, you have not seen a picture of this. To give you an idea, there is a massive stone base, which is essentially the burial chambers, flanked on both sides by sort of these half circles, large staircases, and a big sort of viewing platform on top. Then above you, you have all of the statues, these four enormous military statues, the enormous Lincoln, and in the center, a giant obelisk. It's big. It's really, really big. Not as tall as the Washington Monument in D.C., but the same idea of a very tall obelisk, but imagine it being more like the Statue of Liberty, where you have this tall statue in the middle and a really big base around it. Think about it. Realistically, what type of support do you think that that size would need? Even if you're not an architect, I think you can argue that you need something that's very, very well-based. The foundations for this only go six feet below ground level. Let me tell you something right now. As an architectural historian, that is not enough. Small houses have deeper foundations than that. If you have ever been to the Louvre and you have been underground where you start off, to support something, especially something made of masonry, something that you're going to make out of marble and granite, you definitely need more than that. So it's built on a shifting foundation. They do not take into account the soil type, It's a disaster almost from the start. And the fact is very clear by the fact is they don't even finish the monument itself. They run into major financial problems. They really struggle to complete this. Um, So it's granite and brick, depending on which part of it you're in. But the fact is the foundation is not sufficient to support it. Today, I believe they have closed all of the staircases and you can't actually climb up the outside of the monument because they are in bad shape. 
So the monument itself is completed roughly 10 years after Lincoln's death. It's dedicated by President Grant on October 15, 1874. However, at that point, they have barely finished the statues. And there's a lot of jokes that the people from the National Lincoln Monument Association are all going to be dead before they're done. I don't mean to sound overly critical, but this to me is a classic example a lot of people ask me, oh, well, you know, the JFK gravesite is so simple. Why did it take so long to build? Well, it takes so long to build because you are designing something that is going to potentially be visited by millions upon millions upon millions of people. It takes a lot of wear and tear, just people walking across it every day. So safety and underlying design has to be a priority. And I don't think that that's what happened here. I think that they had very grand ideas. And I think that all of their intentions were good. But they based too much on the decorative portions, not enough on the practical portions. Because what took so long to build, say, at the JFK gravesite, is not the gravesite itself. It's not the decorative parts. It's not the walls. It's the approaches. It was grading the land. All of those things which are the reason that you want, say, a structural engineer to be involved. This was not taken into account. So Lincoln is moved. And almost immediately, they can see that it's not structurally sound. So, for example, in January of 1873, uh, the association received a letter advising, quote, that the joints of the stone on the platform were not secured some strangers, as well as citizens, found fault with the work. Apparently, they also didn't take into account, like, that there should be some sort of circulation. Like, so, for example, that terrace where people went to view the statuary had a terrible problem with drainage. Like, it would flood, and because there was no place for the water to go, it would actually leak into the interior of the monument, so it would appear to be raining inside the monument. That's a major issue, especially when you consider the fact that the interior of the monument is what most people are there for. So, for example, they have what's known as the Memorial Hall inside, and the Memorial Hall is sort of like a miniature museum, they have Lincoln's death mask and they have photographs and lithographs and it's obviously changed and evolved over the years and we'll talk a little bit more about why that happens. But it's something that people can come and they can kind of have almost an immersive museum type experience whereas suddenly you have all of this water damage so now you have these artifacts which are at risk because of this water damage. It, it's a bit of a disaster. And I cannot make any claims because again I have not visited here I have never been to Springfield I have not seen this in person but I read enough accounts that again it's so surprising you see the same type of criticisms that arise over the old tomb with George Washington where things are just an absolute mess and it's falling apart and it looks terrible and this is something that is right around the time that it opens. It's not like there's even 10 good years before things start to get bad. Also, again, you would have thought after the Gardner with the head episode with George Washington, we would have learned our lesson. Now, Lincoln's body has never been stolen. However, 
he does hold the distinction of being the president who has been moved the most times post-mortem, no less than 17 times. And this is not just counting the initial transport. I'm talking about we put him in the crypt, we removed him from the crypt, we moved him to another crypt, he was in this place, he was in that place. So in 1876, so just two years after the monument is dedicated, there is a theft attempt where a group of counterfeiters, of all things, decided that they were going to steal the president's body in order to hold it for ransom. They had a, basically a accomplice of theirs was in prison. They were trying to secure his release and they decided that the best way to do this was to use Lincoln's body as collateral. Um, it's interesting because there's a lot of coverage of this because it, it was actually thwarted. Um, those who were in, you know, in charge of protecting Lincoln's body stopped it before it happened, but they decided that given the poor structural condition of the monument, as a result, Lincoln's remains should be mo- removed and hidden. Now, Mary Todd Lincoln dies in 1882, and so there is essentially like a decade where Lincoln is not in the burial chamber. And everybody talks about him being buried in the basement. There's a lot of fighting on the internet about this, about the fact there's not really a basement to this. Well, keep in mind, this was designed as a family tomb. So we talked about Lincoln and his two sons, and eventually a third of his sons, Tad, will also be buried there. But really, it's those five burials. Um, There are a few other people who are temporarily buried there, but you don't ever have, you know, multiple generations of the Lincolns using this. Um, mainly because his son, Robert Todd Lincoln, will be buried at Arlington. And his grandson, who was briefly buried in the Lincoln tomb at Oak Ridge after initially dying in England and being buried at Kensal Green, he will eventually be moved to Arlington as well. So there's never this multi-generational use, again, similar to Washington's tomb, that they anticipate. So they have a lot of empty space. There's essentially empty hallways and you know, burial vaults that are never going to be in use. So there's plenty of places that you can hide a couple of coffins in this massive memorial. I don't think it really matters, but he does get shuffled around quite a bit. And the association, as handy as they were with cash, really don't have a long-term plan. Now, what they do is they appoint a custodian. Now, the custodians are sort of an interesting tidbit about the Lincoln Memorial that I haven't found really the equivalent of. These are people who initially are in charge of essentially the tourism aspect of the monument. So the first custodian, a man by the name of John Carroll Powers, is appointed to keep the monument open every day except for Sunday. He is to collect a 25-cent admission charge to go in and see the Memorial Hall. He is in charge with keeping the grounds around the monument, which the monument is kind of like on an open hill area, to keep them clean and well-tended for. And in compensation for this, he can keep what he makes from selling souvenirs. And the interesting thing is, is... These are almost like appointed for life type positions. So there were eight custodians of the monument. So John Carroll Powers, who dies in 1894, 
He is succeeded by Edward S. Johnson, who serves until 1921 when he dies. The third keeper is Herbert W. Fay, who serves until 1949 when he dies at the age of 90. Then briefly for just a year, I'm not really sure why, I don't know if he died or what happened, his son takes over, Earl Owen Fay. It's taken over by George Cashman. And at this point, you start to have people who retire. Uh, so he retires in 1975. Then in the 70s, we have Carol Andrews, the sixth custodian who is the first female. She will serve until 1987 when she retires. And then from that point onward, we have all women custodians. Next, we have Nan Wynn, who serves from 1987 to 2008. And then the final custodian, Candy Knox, who retired in 2014, and there is no longer a custodian because funds do not allow for it. So 2014 is the end of, at that point, a 130-year tradition, essentially. So this monument. Already by the 1880s, it's being repaired constantly. By the 1890s, right around the time that um, John Carroll Powers, the, the first custodian, dies, what happens is, is that the Monument Association is essentially bankrupt, that they are not making enough money off the admission charges to really deal with the upkeep. Certainly the cemetery cannot handle the upkeep of such a popular monument. So in 1895, the monument itself is deeded from the National Lincoln Monument Association to the state of Illinois, who they still hold it today. And like I said, I think that's one of the complicated issues here, where the state owns the monument, but the state doesn't own the cemetery, but the monument's within the cemetery. It's a tricky situation, and I don't envy them this. It's really challenging I think, to try to have something that's this popular and still conduct everyday business and do all of the things that you need to do to keep a cemetery open and thriving, especially a historic one. After the state takes over, they undertake the first full reconstruction and restoration of the monument in 1901. And at this point, they actually remove the coffins of President Lincoln and his family. And they are stored separately. It's pretty cool, though, because you can see they have, this is well, well documented. Lots of people came out to see this. And they move them with a steam crane. Again, we have the sort of advent of much newer technology. And they are put in a temporary vault um, that's like on the northeast corner of the monument. And so while reconstruction is happening, they are stored there. And then to prevent any more attempts, they make the decision that they are going to bury the president and his family, and they are going to bury them under several feet of concrete. Now, this is where it gets interesting. It's too weird not to mention, but they make the decision, all right, before we cover him up with a couple of feet of concrete, we should probably make sure that this is actually Abraham Lincoln. Now, I'm not sure why they felt the need to confirm this, but they definitely do. And so what they decide to do is they actually open up the coffin. 
Um, Robert Todd Lincoln, who is obviously Lincoln's last surviving son, he visits the tomb on April 25th, 1901. Um, and he is the one that essentially made the decision to encase in concrete. Uh, so he decided to put a steel cage there and there are 23 people here for this. So they open up the coffin. Um, obviously there's a very strong smell of decay when they open it up. However, the massive amounts of embalming mean that Lincoln is still recognizable despite the fact that at this point you're talking almost 40 years have gone by since death. Um, he's not in great shape. Um, the percussive injury to his head from a gunshot wound has caused bruising and discoloration, but they say that, uh, he is very recognizable because his beard and mole are still there. Um, his eyebrows were gone. Weird fact. Um, and they talk about the fact that his suit is actually covered in yellow mold. Uh, his gloves had rotted off, um, but you can still see the remains of the American flag that they draped across his chest. Um, I don't know if you would call this embalming so much as mummification. Now, we do know that modern embalming techniques are pretty good. Uh, the best example I can always think of is uh, Medgar Evers, who was one of the early civil rights activists who was gunned down in his driveway in Jackson, Mississippi, before Dr. King. Uh, and Medgar Evers, in the 1980s, I think it was, late 80s, early 90s, they exhumed his body for the purpose of studying his injuries because they had arrested the man that they believed was responsible and they eventually put him on trial. And Medgar Evers, at that point, despite being buried for 25 years, was still embalmed and still intact enough that they were able to do a study on his remains and use that evidence in court. Um, so 23 people observed this. And here's a piece of information you can use at cocktail parties. One of the people there present was a young man by the name of Fleetwood Lindsay. And Fleetwood Lindsay at the time was age 14. He was a freshman in high school. And Fleetwood Lindsay would die on February 1st, 1963, and have the distinction of being the last person to see the face of Abraham Lincoln. So he dies 99 years after the president was assassinated, so almost 100 years, just shy of 100 years, he is the last living person to have seen Abraham Lincoln. It's creepy as hell, but I also think it's kind of cool that they actually know who that last living person was and that that last living person lived almost 100 years after the assassination. So when they close the casket, that's the last time because the coffins will be lowered into the steel cage, which forms an additional protective barrier covered with several levels of concrete. That is where Lincoln remains to this day. So even though he did a lot of moving and shaking, essentially in the first 40 years following his death, since 1901, he has stayed in the same place. The same cannot be said for the tomb. The tombs continued to struggle over time, and... I haven't been able to do sufficient research, unfortunately, you know, desktop-wise, 
I think that the major problem is that in 1901, they were trying to play the little Dutch boy with his fingers in the dam, and they were trying to fix the worst of it. A lot of what they have to do during the second restoration, which occurred in 1921, 20 years later, is they have to fix all the things that they screwed up in 1901. It's one of those instances of do it right the first time as opposed to trying to just patch things up. Because just trying to patch things up made a lot of the inherent flaws even worse. And so in 1921, they're going to essentially recreate this. Now, I should mention that the biggest thing that they did in 1901 too was that they had originally argued that the obelisk, which tops the monument, which today, if you look at it, is a 117-foot-tall obelisk. So think of a traditional grand obelisk along the lines of the Washington Monument. Prior to that, there had been complaints about the fact that they needed to correct the stumpy appearance of this obelisk. Originally, it was shorter. I would imagine probably because Larkin Mead didn't want the obelisk to overpower his sculptures. So they essentially make it taller, And by putting a ton of granite, probably several tons of granite, on top and not really fixing, but rather just patching up the underlying problems, you have severe deterioration to the point where it is no longer safe. So there is a massive renovation, shoring up of this. And at the same time, they also go through and do a very over-the-top redecoration of the interior covering it essentially entirely in marble and bronze. Um, and most of this work is, uh, is conducted by a local company, the, uh, the English Brothers of Champaign, Illinois. Um, and again, it takes 10 years to do this full restoration. It's rededicated in June of 1931 by Herbert Hoover, uh, which I can imagine that that's a PR struggle. Whereas certain events like this, you know, celebrating American history and the great triumphs, are seen as real ego boosters and real boons in time of struggle. I can remember reading once that, you know, Arthurian legends at times of struggle in the United Kingdom, you know, King Arthur always comes back because he's seen as sort of the shining beacon of hope that can overcome any obstacle. I can see how Abraham Lincoln is similar to that, but also this massive and very extensive restoration, which finishes up in 31, just as the Great Depression is really, really getting bad, and Herbert Hoover certainly is not a popular figure. I can imagine that this might have been a tricky time to do a rededication. But I think the struggle is here that when they redecorate it in the 1920s, The Lincoln Monument that you see today, while the exterior is very similar, the interior is entirely 1920s. It does not look the way that it was originally designed. It's very over the top, and from the pictures I've seen, it almost looks like the inside doesn't match the outside. Um, It has almost like an Art Deco-y type feel. There is a massive red granite sarcophagus. Obviously, Lincoln's not in the sarcophagus. He's, as we said, encased in concrete far below. This is, to me, a little bit tricky. It's my favorite American architect is H.H. Richardson. 
And similarly, if you go see Trinity Church in Boston, it's in Copley Square, it's considered to be his masterpiece. The exterior is still H.H. Richardson, whereas the interior, similarly, was particularly the altar area, was significantly redesigned right around the same time as this in like the 20s and 30s. And so while it's beautiful and while it's a masterpiece of that particular era, contextually it just doesn't fit. It doesn't look like it matches. This may be an architectural historian's pet peeve. Uh, I I normally can be pretty flexible about these things. I just look at it and I'm like, this just doesn't work. This overall monument just represents a, a perfect example of just bad architecture. I'm not saying it's not impressive. I'm not saying it's not a great try. But overall, it seems like it's just been plagued with problems since the very beginning. And as I said, it seems like they still have a lot of issues because large portions of the monument, particularly those terraces, have been closed over the years. Structurally, it's, it continues to struggle, and I think it will continue to. Uh, I'm not sure how much money the state of Illinois is you know, anticipating in the future, but the fact that they currently don't have the money to pay for the position of the custodian leads me to believe that maybe this monument isn't getting the love that it deserves. That being said, it is still massively popular. It is still a place of pilgrimage, and I think that you cannot discount that. Uh, Most people who go there will never see the flaws. They will never see the bad design. They will never see the shallow foundation. To them, they're going to a place of pilgrimage. And it's a place where I think Lincoln's vision and Mary Todd Lincoln's vision, it, it it is still present. Now, if you are that interested, you can also see a replica of the actual funeral cortege and everything else like basically how Lincoln was laid out you can see that if you go to the Lincoln Presidential Library which is also obviously in Illinois Uh, as I said you can see a lot of resemblances if you look at the photography which there's some excellent colorful uh, color photography uh, of the funeral preparations for John F. Kennedy um, the cattle cattle I can't pronounce that damn word. Uh, The C-A-T-A-F-A-L-Q-U-E, upon which Lincoln was laid out, was also used for JFK's funeral, and there are tons of pictures that you can see of this. As I said, it's also um, been on display in that unused vault that you can see at the Capitol where Washington was supposed to be moved to. A lot of parallels here for, you know, the dual President's Day, looking at arguably the two most significant American presidents. I think that in the modern day, we see a lot more uniformity in presidential burial sites. Obviously now, if there is a presidential library, that is almost universally where the presidents are going to be buried. You have a mix. You have some that are grand. You know, if you look at something like either... Grant's tomb or Garfield's tomb that are on the extreme levels. You have some like FDR that are very, very minimalist. There is such a wide range. And I think that presidential graves continue to fascinate us because 
even though they are certainly not common people, they are anything but they are accessible to us in the public. And it's interesting, a few weeks ago, because I had never been, I went to um, Auburn Avenue here in Atlanta because I actually had never visited uh, the Martin Luther King National Historic Site. And I saw the graves of Dr. King and Coretta Scott King, which are displayed to me in a very, very similar fashion to the way that modern presidential libraries display graves. Um, like, for example, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, all, all of the all of the recent presidents, all of them have gone with that model. But Martin Luther King was originally buried at Southview Cemetery, which is the African-American cemetery in Atlanta. And I kind of struggle with the fact that they moved him. I think that there is something to be said about laying among your people. And Southview was something that that the African-American citizens of Atlanta had to fight for, to have their own cemetery, to, to have their own burial traditions, to not be relegated to a forgotten corner of a segregated cemetery. That's where his parents are. His mother, who was gunned down after him, I don't know. It's not my decision. Obviously, I can't make the decisions on behalf of Dr. Martin Luther King and his family. I kind of wish they had left him at Southview. Because the fact is, if you are going to represent your people, particularly in a struggle like civil rights, in Lincoln's case, if he is going to represent people and try to unify a nation, I think the fact that even though he has this ridiculous outsized monument, the fact that he chose to be buried in Springfield among his own people, there is something to be said about that. For good or for ill. Just my opinion. Hopefully you have learned something about presidential graves for President's Day this year. I learned a lot doing these two. These were topics that I had a very general knowledge about, but I definitely got to dive in deep. Uh, I am a little bit more open to learning more about presidential history, and maybe we'll do some some fun presidential graves in the future. I'd love to look just comparatively even if at the burials at presidential libraries. Uh, I'm kind of curious because I live right near the Carter Center. Obviously, Jimmy Carter is not getting any younger. I'll be curious to see if he ends up at the Carter Center or if he ends up in Plains uh, when he dies. A bit morbid. Sorry, former President Carter. But overall, I think it's an interesting topic and we'll continue with it. As I said, look forward to a double episode next week. I think it is going to be really great. I think you guys are really going to enjoy these. Um, As always, please... Subscribe, rate, review uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you are listening because those reviews really do make a big difference. Uh, I greatly appreciate them. Uh, I have seen a remarkable spike in listenership. I know that I have new listeners, so I know that it's inconvenient and you have to sign in, and believe me, I am a procrastinator more than anyone else. Uh, But if you do have the five minutes, it really does make a big difference in terms of making it much more visible. Please feel free to follow along on social media. Uh, we are on Facebook at Tomb with a View Podcast, Instagram, Tomb Period with Period A Period View. Website is Tomb with a View Podcast.weebly.com. And you can also, if you have any suggestions for new topics, if you have questions, concerns, want to send us some photos, uh, you can reach out through Tomb with a View Podcast at gmail.com. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View.